Hello, my rebels. In today's show, I take you through a disturbing video recorded yesterday in Edmonton, Alberta. You know, Edmonton is the capital of what's supposed to be the freest province. Even its motto, Fortis et Libera, means strong and free. And yet I saw police grabbing a peaceful protester, three of them, grabbing him by his legs and arms and pulling him out of there just because. He wasn't breaking social distancing rules. He wasn't doing anything threatening. They just shut him down. I'll show you the video and I'll tell you why I think it's so wrong and why I think this pandemic has been an excuse by police to way overstretch. And I don't know, I guess I wish you had the video version of it. Let me segue into inviting you to become premium subscribers that gives you the video version. I take you through this cell phone video. It's quite something. Go to rebelnews.com and click on subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. You get the daily video version of this podcast, plus shows from Sheila Gunn-Reed and David Menzies, and importantly, the $8 a month, it's not that big of a deal to you, I hope, but it is a big deal to us because it's how we pay our staff. So please go to rebelnews.com and become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. Thanks. Here's today's podcast. Tonight, a peaceful protester is arrested for sitting by himself on the large plaza in front of Alberta's legislature. Why? It's May 11th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon yeah. consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I'm really mad a harmless protester sitting in front of the Alberta legislature on the big public plaza was physically picked up by police by his arms and legs and detained and hauled off for what? For hollering at an empty government building on a Sunday afternoon for rambling on a bit about his own theory of the Constitution and government legitimacy or whatever. Here, see for yourself. I'll spare you listening too much of his homemade theories, but I'll play a full minute of it for you because I want you to understand how harmless and banal and actually, in its own way, how touching it was, what he said, as in he actually still believes enough in democracy that he'd go to a nearly empty plaza in front of a legislature because he thinks he can convince the world through his arguments to see things his way. He might be wrong, but he's a lot less cynical than most people and a lot more politically active, wouldn't you say? I don't even know what he was trying to say, really, but apparently the police didn't think it was legal. Take a look. Note that the Constitution is created first, then the government. To create a democratic nation for the people, by the people, of the people, it cannot be any other way. Yes. No, no foreign government can formulate the Constitution of another country. And as a matter of fact, ours was done exactly like that when Pierre Elliott Trudeau went to the British monarchy and had them drop our Constitution, the Charter as it is known today. Paychecks are very important, I guess. No foreign government is formulated to create the constitution of another country. It has to be created by the people themselves and becomes thus, for all intents and purposes, their protected property. Not only the law, 
So there was no violence, no call to violence, just his own theories about the world. No one crowding around him from a health point of view, except the cops. That is funny how they're always the ones doing all the social distancing violations when they arrest people for not social distancing. Now, right at that point, the camera points to another guy who's being arrested too. Not sure why. Doesn't seem violent either. This guy's just being walked away by half a dozen riot cops. Not sure why. Watch for 20 seconds. He's, he's getting arrested. Is he? Over there. Jesse. Okay. Okay. In violation of our freedom! In violation of our freedom! Because he's native? Because he's native? I don't know. Could be. Maybe not. I think these cops were doing what the cops across Canada have been doing, just capriciously and whimsically applying laws that are surely unconstitutional, absolutely vague, and will be thrown out by the time they get to court in 6 or 12 months, if they ever do get to court. But in the meantime, the police are literally ordering the country to remain under a form of house arrest and cracking down on peaceful protests. That's what we're looking at here. So that guy walked out by the police, and then a guy with an upside-down Canadian flag. You know what an upside-down flag means, right? It's a sign of distress. It's what ships do when there's something amiss. It's not a sign of disloyalty or rebellion. It's a sign of pain, of grievance. Well... You can't have that. So watch that guy being walked out again by a cluster of cops who seem to be the only ones breaking the no crowding rules. I'm here independently, but at the same time, they're going to do this to all of you. Another one with the megaphone will be next because you can speak the loudest. <laughs> and indeed, that heckler was correct. The guy with the megaphone was next. The guy with his theories about vaccines and globalism and constitutionalism and the charter. They tried to card him to sweep him up, but he said, what have I done? Take a look. I have not committed any offense today. No, he has not. As far as I am concerned, you are trying to abridge my unalienable rights. And I do not consent. I'm being charged. Okay. Right. So now I am being charged. So tell me exactly what I'm being charged with. So first it was being detained and now I'm being arrested. So why why am I being charged when there's a whole other group of people here and yet you're going to come and pick on me? Do you guys have a problem with the things that I was discussing here today? Well, he said 71-1, so make up your mind. 71-1, I am here peacefully. I'm not doing anything wrong. It's an act. I am not in a group. It's an act. 71-1, 71-1, make up your mind. Make up your mind. Make up your mind. I don't have ID. You guys took that from me last year. <laughs> so he didn't want to give his ID to the cops, and he says they took it from him last year anyways. I have no idea. I don't know who he is, really. I didn't listen to his whole manifesto. I just don't care enough to listen to the whole thing, and it feels pretty homemade and uninteresting to me, but I think there's probably a grain of truth to what he's saying. If the cops didn't actually take his ID from him last year, they'd probably know who he is. It seems like he's a bit of a fixture there. They were just sweeping him up, as police do to the lowly sometimes. I don't know if you could hear it, but it was a bit muffled. Uh, when he asked what he actually did wrong, what offense, what crime... 
as opposed to the process crime of not giving your ID to a cop. They got it wrong. They said Section 71.1 of the Public Health Act. Well, I checked. There is no Section 71.1. And they corrected themselves and said 73.1. Okay. Well, here's what that part of the law says. A person who contravenes this act, the regulations, an order under Section 62, or an order of a medical officer of health or physician under Part 3, is guilty of an offense. So Section 73.1 is what gives the police the power to arrest someone for breaking a health order, but only for someone who breaks an order. It's for people who break a specific section of the Health Act or a specific order. Uh, and those cops didn't cite the section that guy broke because they couldn't think of one because they didn't need one. They were just going to arrest him no matter what because they wanted to because he's obviously a pain in the neck and they seem to know him from before and they're just sick of him. Citing Section 73.1 is like saying, I'm arresting you because I'm arresting you. Yeah, but for what? Well, I'm arresting you because I'm arresting you. No, no, that's not how it works, but you saw that's how it did work. I'm going to show you the next part from two different ang camera angles, and we'll try to clean up the audio a bit. They basically tell him to leave, and he says he won't. It's his right to stay. And so they pick him up, three cops holding him, another ten cops watching him, and just take him away. I'm sorry, these are unlawful orders. You are infringing on my unalienable rights, my God-given rights that are endowed upon me by my Creator, and I am not going to comply. What is your name and badge number? Look at this brutality. This is Alberta. Three times in a week. Alberta! Alberta, Canada. This is happening and you guys are letting it? This is not right. Now, the jacket said sheriff, so I think that means they work for the Alberta legislature itself, so they work for Jason Kenney, really. Funny, it feels like they're still working for Rachel Notley and the NDP, don't you think? You heard the cops, they just didn't care. They said he could fight it in court or fight it legislatively, I think one of the cops said. What does that mean? That this rough protester should, could become a lawmaker? It sounds like the protester wasn't the only homemade law talking crank out there yesterday. The cop was too, fight it legislatively. But the cop was the only crank with a gun, wasn't he? So he won. I accept, just based on the style and the sound, and not without actually going through the details of his speech, I accept the proposition that that protester with the megaphone is on the margins and that he was noisy and irritating. But really, I shouldn't even grant that. He's no crankier than most of the protests I've seen over the years. Unlike the rent-a-mob protests from the left, at least he seems to be familiar with his material, even if his theories are unusual. I think most protesters are noisy and irritating to people who don't agree with them or understand them. However, people still have the right to have their own counter-protests or just to ignore them and stay away, as 99.999% of the city of Edmonton apparently did yesterday. It looks like he only had, I don't know, what, 10 friends with him? out of more than a million citizens. So what was the problem here exactly? They required him to be picked up by his arms and legs and dragged away and detained. Merely citing the Public Health Act's arrest powers, 
Section 73.1 is, is not a reason. I'm not for this crank. I'm against what the cops did to him. And I want to know who told them to do it, who told them to be out in massive force, dozens of police, to meet a handful of physically separated, peaceful, unarmed protesters. And you know what? I don't care who this protester is. I don't care. The cops seem to know him. Just looking and listening to him, I'm, I'm going to guess who he is, which is not a sound approach, but here it goes. I'm going to guess. I'm guessing he's a guy who, until a few years ago, was pretty, were working a pretty well-paying blue-collar job in Edmonton. It was really the blue-collar job capital of Canada until a few years ago. I don't know, welder, rig hand, truck driver, whatever. Back in the day, you could make six figures in Alberta as a semi-skilled trade, close to 200 grand a year if you had some technical skills. I'm guessing that this guy is one of the 200,000 men who were thrown out of work when the oil prices fell five years ago and kept out of work even after the oil prices rose last year because Rachel Notley attacked his job and then Justin Trudeau attacked his job and banned three pipelines and banned an oil science mine and put on a carbon tax and then jacked up that carbon tax some more and killed $100 billion worth of oil construction. So yeah, that's my guess. I'm stereotyping, but I know what Alberta was and I know what it is now. If I were unemployed and had no job prospects, and if I was being bossed around by politicians, and my hopes were being canceled, first by Trudeau's anti-oil policies, and then by federal, provincial, and municipal pandemic politicians and bureaucrats, but all those fat cats were still getting paid, and then I heard there might be some mandatory UN vaccine that I have to take before I can do anything, even go out and about. That was one of the things he was talking about. Yeah, I'd be cranky too. You know, you're allowed to be cranky. It's one of your rights. He's not a threat. He's not even armed peacefully, like some of those U.S. back-to-work protests I've seen. From what I saw, he was just noisy. It doesn't mean he needs to be dragged off by police. Or maybe, <laughs> 10 minutes in the future, he'll be dragged off, you know, by a robot. Let's keep Singapore healthy. For your own safety and for those around you, please stand at least one meter apart. Thank you. Please stand at least one meter apart. Thank you. Yeah, that's from Singapore, a robot dog walking through a park, scolding people if they get too close. Or remember that New Jersey cop who was using made-in-China drones for surveilling people to see if they were too close to each other in their backyards. Mayors need to be creative. We have to figure out a way to get to people that police cars can't get to. Elizabeth City Police shot this video for us to show us how drones work. The drones make it easier for police to see into certain areas where access by patrol cars is more difficult. That includes tight spaces between buildings, behind schools, and in backyards. <coughs> Failure to comply could lead to a summons or a $1,000 fine. You think the drones watching over people is a good idea or a bad idea? I think at, any, at this point, it's worth a try. It's just an invasion of your privacy. The mayor's heard it all. My answer to those people are, if these drones save one life, it is clearly worth the activity and the information that the drones are sending. The drones donated by DJI, a Chinese company, have gone to 43 agencies in 22 states, all to help enforce social distancing rules. Yeah, it's getting creepy, isn't it? 
And here's Teresa Tam talking about tracking bracelets and prisons if you don't take her vaccine. If there are people who are non-compliant, there are definitely uh, laws and, and public health um, powers that can quarantine people in mandatory settings. It's potential you could track people, put bracelets on their uh, arms, have police and other setups to ensure quarantine is undertaken. There are countless people who are being ground into dust by this pandemic. There are more homeless people out there than I've ever seen before. Yesterday, I went through a drive through near Toronto for lunch, and there was a gaggle of homeless people begging for food from the cars going through. Have you ever seen that before in Canada? I haven't. Maybe I live a sheltered life. It's everywhere. Here's eight police, no masks, harassing a homeless woman for being in a park. That's in Australia. You think that's only in foreign countries that happens? Well, remember our first case at fightthefines.com was a pastor who was fined for literally feeding the homeless. We are providing necessities of life to those that you and your bosses refuse to provide. Do you guys do that you respect Stand back from me a little bit. Whoa, 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 whoa. On your feet, stand back. Okay. Or what, stand you're going to threaten me and abuse me? Guys, do not do that. Feet, Tell them not to touch me. Six feet away for everybody. That's for everybody. Look, the pandemic itself has passed its peak. It wasn't a general threat. 82% of its victims in Canada were in nursing homes. That's a real problem, possibly related to temporary foreign workers mixing between seniors' homes and living together in low-rent bunkhouses. Super spreaders, just like in the Alberta foreign worker meatpacking plants. That's not a nationwide crisis. That's, that's not a problem for all of us. Not a single Canadian under age 20 has died. Not one. Not one single person under age 20. The virus crisis, it's pretty much over. The economic crisis is here. And as people who are down in the dumps, down on their luck, down and out, are picked on and bullied and arrested and silenced by the well-paid, well-fed elite, that class that's just had a ball during the lockdown, well, I fear we are entering the worst part of it just now. Stay with us for more. Welcome back. Well, as you know, the world continues, even though we've been gripped with the pandemic crisis, the Conservative Party of Canada is still proceeding with its leadership race. In fact, this Friday is the cutoff for new membership sales if you want to vote in that process. We've had the pleasure of interviewing several candidates for the leadership, and the first candidate to sit down with me has joined us again. Her name is Dr. Leslin Lewis, and she joins us now via Skype from her home in the greater Toronto area. Dr. Lewis, welcome back. Nice to see you again. Yes, likewise, Ezra. Well, Thanks you've been so busy. I've been following you in the media, and I've been following your fundraising because that's a measure of your success. I have to say, very strong fundraising numbers. Tell me about uh, how the campaign has gone for you, because just from seeing your media coverage and the fundraising reports, you put in a pretty strong showing. How are you feeling about it? Oh, it's great, Ezra. And we were one of the last to start uh, fundraising off of the list. So our numbers are not even for the full period as the other um, 
candidates and our we've just been doing phenomenally well and it's largely a grassroots based movement where people even you know uh, elderly people in their 80s are sending $25 and um, it's just the the sheer numbers that we're bringing in and just the the fact that people are seeing me as a very refreshing candidate well, I think that's outstanding. Listen, I want to talk to you about the uh, issues of the era. I mean, I think this pandemic came out of the blue. I don't think anyone was expecting it. How would you rate the response to it by Justin Trudeau and the federal government? Uh, what do you think they've done wrong? And what, if anything, do you think they've done right? Well, to be honest with you, like we could always look backwards and hindsight is 2020. But I think from the outset, early on, I was very, um, very concerned about some of the approaches that we were taking. I would have closed the borders earlier, repatriated Canadians back home and then put them in quarantine. And I actually was the first candidate to voice concern over the fact that when we were urging our government to close the borders that they responded by saying that it was racist and so i actually was the first to come out and say no this is not racist this is public safety we have to put canadians first and we need to instill mechanisms that will make sure that canadians are safe and that the virus is not spread mm -hmm. i think one of the broader questions and you see it in other countries too particularly australia and the united kingdom is that other Western democracies are reassessing their approach to China, whether it's to allow China to put in 5G technology from the Huawei company, or even just, I don't know, talking about Taiwan uh, as a closer ally in the region as opposed to just communist China. Do you think that Canada should reassess our foreign policy towards China? Uh, should we reassess as the Americans are reshoring industries that had put their factories there. What would you do, let's say we're out of this pandemic, 6, 12, 24 months into the future. What do you think Canada's stance towards China itself should be? Well, I mean, we really haven't reassessed our foreign policy in over 50 years. So I think that we do need a comprehensive reassessment because we, we, we're now in ad adversarial trade relationships with countries like China. And so it's changed from an amicable trade relationship to one of a, an adversarial one. And so we really have to start reassessing how we relate to these countries. And we've learned that transparency is not always there. We had some very serious concerns about the slow reporting and the transparencies and, and just China's connection with the WHO. And so we have to start um, making sure that we have our own policies in place, that we could check numbers and that we could make sure that the information that we're getting um, does not put Canadians at risk. I have a question for you about one of Trudeau's moves that uh, he did sort of taking advantage of the pandemic crisis, I think. Uh, and I'm talking about his gun control initiative to ban about 1,500 particular types of firearms. Now, it, some of the types he was banning were so obscure, I don't even know if they exist in Canada. But still, putting through firearms legislation without a vote without a debate in the House of Commons, without committing studies. Um, do you have a reaction 
to that? Does this uh, strike at your views on firearms? I don't think we talked about this in our first conversation. Do you have any thoughts about either the substance of Trudeau's gun control or the manner in which he pushed it through? Absolutely. I do feel that he was capitalizing on the Nova Scotia tragedy. And it's very, you know, it's very disconcerting because we've seen that the ban was enacted through regulation and not legislation. And the the latter would have required a debate. And so they've foregone that debate. And because of it, uh, many law abiding citizens are now criminalized. And we have, you know, really interrupted um, many small businesses who are now stuck with ammunition and sporting facilities who no longer can have individuals train for international competitions. And it's just, and, and it was just with the sweep of regulation, which I felt was um, infring- an infringement of the democratic process. I want to talk about um, another issue. Thank you for that. Uh, Over the last few months, we've talked to a a few of the candidates running uh, for the Conservative leadership, and uh, one and maybe two of them, maybe three, I guess, have faced uh, a vetting not by the Conservative Party membership. I'm switching gears here a bit, Dr. Lewis, but rather by the party's leadership um, executive decision makers. Here's what I mean. Jim Carahalios, who we interviewed, uh, sent out some mailing to party members, and he was suspended as a candidate, not by party members, but by the party executive. Uh, Derek Sloan facing uh, similar criticism, uh, and, and there was another candidate who didn't really get out of the gates. I wonder if you have any thoughts on well, what I regard as cancel culture, or knee-jerk censorship. I, I'm not. I'm certainly not asking for you to praise your competitors or your opponents in this race. But I, I wonder how you would deal with fellow conservatives being a little bit prickly, offending this or that sensibility. How would you balance freedom of speech and allowing other uh, members of the conservative party to express themselves versus party discipline? Because it's. It's something that's concerned me. And I I wonder if you have any thoughts on that subject or if you've just sort of focused on your own campaign. Do you have any thoughts on Jim Carahalios, Derek Sloan, or others? Well, I think it's important that the party allows the democratic process to unfold. And so in such a situation, it's the members that really should be deciding on who they want to represent them. And unless something egregious was done, um, I don't believe that it's the party's you know, place to intervene with the, that democratic process. Have you had any conversations with your fellow candidates, either Kerry Halios or Sloan or Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole? Have you, I mean, I, I know campaigning has really been shut down for a month or two because of the pandemic. I'm just curious if you've had any friendly interactions or maybe unfriendly interactions on the hustings. Have you bumped into them or talked to them? Well, actually, no, because we've done, everything has been via Zoom. So we've all been focused on our own campaign and just reaching reaching members on our own. Uh, but we do, I mean, the campaigns do speak amongst each other about various issues. Um, I remember when we first met, and I very much enjoyed uh, your visit to our office here. Uh, you felt like you were ready to rumble, but it certainly did feel like your first big political fight. It's been a couple months now. I'm just curious how you felt about the experience. Is there something that surprised you? Is there something that uh, has um, 
being a positive surprise or has it been tougher in some ways than you expected? Uh, you're a little bit more seasoned now. You've been roughed up a little bit by the campaign trail. What are your thoughts now having been through it for a while? Well, you know, it, the funny thing is, is that people who you expect to be your allies, people who likely have the same policies as you, you feel that you see that they're the ones who are trying to destroy your reputation and undermine you. And then the people who you thought would be your opponents are somewhat more um, respectful of you. So that that came as a bit of a surprise. Hmm. Um, let me ask you a question about what I regard as the toughest party in Canada, of course, the Liberals have been successful two elections in a row. But I've always used the phrase the media party to describe the establishment legacy journalists who typically support the Liberals, who have a uniform point of view on a lot of issues, whether it's social conservatism or global warming or even firearms, as we talked about. Do you have any thoughts on your experience dealing with the mainstream media? Uh, did you find that they were more open to you because you don't fit the conservative mold? You're a, a black woman in the conservative party that perhaps dashes their stereotypes of the party. Have you had uh, any thoughts about how the media party has treated you? Well, I, I can see that they don't know what to make of me. That's that's very apparent. And um, but to be honest with you, the interviews that I have had with them, with the mainstream media, have been equally tough. They've asked equally tough questions. But I feel that you know it's just the manner of which I was able to forthrightly answer those questions that I wasn't. They weren't really able to trip me up the way they may have tripped up somebody who they could label um, a, a certain way that they cannot get away with those same labels being attached to me. So it's almost a form. It's almost as if what you're saying, it's a reality that my presence um, does serve to de-weaponize some of the attacks that we usually get as conservatives. That's very, very true. I see uh, in some opinion polls that Justin Trudeau has risen in the polls, and I think that's just a, my own reaction is that's a temporary boost because there's a feeling of national solidarity and let's get behind the leader. I think we've seen that in some other countries as well. I, I predict that'll subside somewhat as we get through uh, the, the panic stage and we deal with the real problems of the deep unemployment. Um, if you were successful and became the conservative leader, what do you think your main issue would be as opposition leader, as conservative party leader? And if we were heading into an election as soon as next year, what would your chief focus be taking it to the Trudeau liberals? Is there one thing you think they're particularly vulnerable on in the minds of Canadians? Well, I think that in general, we need to focus on I, the top three things for me is just looking at our economy um, and our democratic values, our sovereignty and our Canadian identity. Those three things I think that we we need to focus on because there has been fractures within our confederation and we see that there is a large amount of regional discontent that we have to resolve and I believe that a lot of that is undergirded by the, our, the, the way that our economy is structured and a lot of um, imposition of foreign interference on our national sovereignty. Let me ask you one more question about that, because I think you're right. Before the pandemic hit, one of the issues that was really acute was Alberta, the oil patch, the pipelines, the big oil sands mine called uh, the, the, 
the tech frontier mine, the, the, the blockades of the railways. I felt that Alberta in particular and Saskatchewan too was feeling very marginalized and almost being driven out of the country by the Trudeau Liberals. As the pandemic recedes, I think some of those issues will reemerge. Have you had any c contact with provincial uh, leaders in Alberta or Saskatchewan? Have you talked to the oil and gas industry at all? Uh, have you heard what their concerns are? Have, do you have a message for them? What would you say to Albertans and other Westerners who are talking about a Wexit to leave Canada? That's, there are a lot of issues that Albertans are very, very concerned about. And, you know, the, the issues that they have raised to me are the way the senators are selected, the number of senators, the number of individuals that are in each riding, that, you know, there's far more individuals in a riding in Alberta than in other provinces. And um, equalization payments are the three top ones. And, and then the, the final one is just the, uh, their ability to sustain themselves and to develop their natural resources. And just this undermining of their economy. And, you know, you have various parties that are pit against the the development of their nat natural resources. And, you know, we had Elizabeth May just stating that bitumen is, is and oil sands are dead. And so that industry is dead. And, and in fact, th that is not, that is not factual because we know that currently, uh, you know, Canadian sales are 120 billion um, a year in bitumen, um, worldwide. And so there's a lot of potential still left in Alberta, and we need those resources, and we can develop them. Well, listen, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, and it was very nice to have you. Uh, if I recall, we were, I think, one of your first media interviews when you started the campaign, so it's nice to close the loop with you as we head into the final stretch. What's your website for people who have been wondering if they should get involved? Uh, where should they check you out to learn a little bit more and buy a membership if they want? Actually, Ezra, you were my first. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And it was a deliberate attempt to make sure that, um, you know, networks like yours and and the work that you do is recognized and that the party recognizes that you have done a lot of work for the conservative movement. So that was very deliberate. And I'm glad that other people felt comfortable to come on the show after I took that plunge. But my website, that, that's enough promotion of you. So <laughs> well, thank website, you very much for those kind words. No, I, I meant it. Um, my website is www.leslinlewis.ca. So that's leslinlewis.ca. Excellent. We'll put that on the bottom of the screen and we'll put that on the page as well for people to click. What a pleasure to see you again, Dr. Lewis. I wish you good luck and I'll watch with interest as the leadership contest continues. Good luck out there. Stay safe. Thank you. Take care now. Thanks for having me again. Our pleasure. Thank you. Well, there you have it, Dr. Leslin Lewis, a leadership candidate for the Conservative Party of Canada. And you can find the link to her website under this video. Stay with us. More ahead. Welcome back on my monologue Friday about why I think we're past the worst of the pandemic. Mark writes, I agree. At the warehouse where I work, Everyone has completely forgotten about all the social distancing. Everybody is in everyone else's face now. No distancing at all. It's over. Well, I'm going to guess if you're working in a warehouse, you're probably working with younger people, 
just a stereotype, I guess. Um, and the fact is, younger people were spared by this virus. I say again, not a single Canadian under the age 20 died from it, thank God. Uh, and even under 40s were virtually immune. Uh, I think there's two things about that. We should focus all our resources on the people who need it, over 70s and especially over 80s. And the rest of us can go back to life as more or less normal, as Bill Maher of HBO says. We can return to our million-year war against microbes. We don't have to hide in our houses anymore. Daniel writes, this should not have been a lockdown in the first place. This virus is a flu. This is clearly a power grab by authoritarian governments. This lockdown has to end. I think you're right. Uh, I think the fact that the models were spectacularly wrong. In Canada, they were wrong by, I think, 70-fold, as in the worst-case scenario was going to be 70 times worse than what it is, and even the best-case scenario was many times worse than what it is. Now, thank God, but it's also a wake-up call that we shouldn't trust experts with models coming from the United Nations, which is exactly what the same sort of people are telling us we have to do with regards to the climate. On my interview with Scott Hayward from the pro-life group right now, Lawrence writes, Elections Canada ignores voter irregularities, foreign funding, pro-liberal groups, but have no trouble indulging in intimidation tactics against rebel news. And now these folks, because of their position, methinks this doesn't pass the smell test. Oh, you're exactly right. I've never seen a left of center or a liberal group being investigated by Elections Canada. And if you look at the sheer number of these third-party campaign groups, they're like 95% on the left. Why is it that only conservatives are being investigated? And it sounds like these folks did everything right. They registered, uh, and yet they're being put through the ringer. I'm worried that Justin Trudeau has politicized this important nonpartisan institution. It sure seems that way. Well, folks, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow. On behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.